0: Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen ground swell under it, and spills the upper boulders in the sun, and makes gaps even too can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I have come after them and made repair where they have left not one stone on a stone. But they would have the rabbit out of hiding to please the yelping dogs. The gaps, I mean. No one has seen them made or heard them made, but at spring mending time we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill. And on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go to each the boulders that have fallen to each. And some are loaves and some so nearly balls. We have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are until our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them. Oh, just another kind of outdoor game. One on a side. It comes to a little more. There where it is, we do not need the wall. He is all pine, and I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is a mischief in me, and I wonder, if I could put a notion in his head, why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here, there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I could say elves to him, but it's not elves exactly, and I'd rather he said it for himself. I see him there, bringing a stone, grasped firmly by the top, in each hand like an old stone savage armed. He moves in darkness, as it seems to me, not of woods, only in the shade of trees, he will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well. He says again, Good fences make good neighbors. That's Robert Frost's poem Mending Wall, one of my favorite poems. And and if you listen to those words, and if you know that poem, it's kind of interesting, right? Good fences make good neighbors. They do. Good fences make great neighbors. In fact, there used to be a time where we didn't have fences, where our yards sort of melted together. And, you know, our kids could go play in their yard, and their kids would play in our yard. And even if somebody planted a tree right on the property line, you didn't care. Because then you had shade, a place that you could sit and relax. But then things began to change. We, we began to be selfish. We began to see our property line and think, no, this is, this is my land. This is my space. So what did we begin to do? We began to put up fences. At first we began to build stone fences and then we went to wood fences and then the 60s and 70s somebody said chain link fences are really aesthetically pleasing and beautiful so we're going to start putting up chain link fences. You live in our neighborhood that's all you see. And then finally HGTV became popular, and so we started building these nice, beautiful picket fences. But, but then we began to notice you could see through the fences, and they weren't tall enough. So we began to fill in the, the holes with more wood, and then we began to build them taller. And, and now some of us have eight-foot fences in our home. Nobody can get in. Nobody can get out. You can't see what your neighbor's doing. They can't see what you're doing. It's an amazing thing, right? Because we believe that good fences make good neighbors. Good fences don't make good neighbors. Good neighbors make good good neighbors. Four weeks ago we started this series called Neighbors and in it we were just challenging us to think a little bit differently about our neighbors. You know, how do we live out that love your neighbor as yourself right where we live? Because for many of us, if we're a follower of Christ, here's what we know and here's what we do. We hear of a need in some other place, we jump right in. Some other city, some other state, some other country. We jump in with our resources we jump in with our finances. We jump in with our time. We even send people to go help, which is an amazing thing to do, and it's incredible. But we forget about our real neighbors. We forget about the people who live on the same floor that we do in our apartment complex. We forget about the people in the, the row of townhomes that we're in. We, we forget about the people whose property is connected to ours. We think about everybody else, but we forget about the people that live right around us. And so in this series, we've been talking about how here in this D.C. metro area, we live in a land of strangers. And so how do we change from living in a land of strangers to the neighbors that we have to building relationships with them and seeing what God can do through that? And so this series has been challenging us to think in a different way as we define what a neighbor is. And through this series, our hope is that we begin to tear down those fences that we've put around us. And see what God can do through those relationships. And so this morning, I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to talk about how do we get to that place of having relationships with our neighbors. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 27. Um, If you don't have your Bible, we're going to put it up here on the screens. And uh, if you have your Journey Church app, you can hit the notes button and follow along there this morning. But we're going to read this event that takes place in the life of Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 27. Here's what it says. It says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. You may be thinking to yourself, who's Levi? Well, Levi is the Hebrew name for Matthew, which is his Greek name. And Matthew is the person that's a disciple of Jesus. And he's also the one that wrote the the Gospel of Matthew. So that kind of helps you out a little bit. His job is he's a tax collector. Now, let me tell you a little bit about what tax collectors did in that particular time. Through Galilee, through Israel, there was this international highway. It was really a trade route. It went from Egypt to north of Israel, went into the Mesopotamian area. And so this was a travel route that many, many people would take. Well, as you traveled through this route, one of the places that you could stop was this little town called Capernaum. Capernaum was on the Sea of Galilee, a beautiful little place. This was, uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament, this was really Jesus HQ. I mean, this was Jesus' headquarters. This is where he would go back to, to rest, relax, family, friends, and very connected there. But this was one of the places that people would stop when they were traveling on this route with their products. These tax collectors, people like Levi, they had this arrangement with the Roman government. What the Roman government would say to Levi is, hey, this is how much tax you need to bring in for this period of time. And so Matthew would actually, or Levi would actually pay all that money up front. He would give all that money to the Roman government, and then he would go back to his toll booth, Think going up I-95, you know, up to, um, up to New York City, you stop. <laughs> you, know, you know the tolls on 95 where you get in line, you're like, man, I should have really gotten an easy pass before this trip, and I didn't get an easy pass. You think, when I get home, I'm going to get an easy pass. You come back home, you don't do it. Next time you do that same trip, you're thinking the same thing. Why didn't I get an easy pass? I didn't get an easy pass. Get an easy pass, it's so much easier. But anyway, there's a toll booth there, and you would stop where Matthew was, and Matthew would look at your stuff, and he'd say, hey, got a lot of stuff here. Here's what your tax is going to be. Now, his job was to recoup what he had given and make a little bit of profit. The problem was he would recoup what he had paid off to the Roman government, and then he'd add a lot of profit to it. And so he wasn't liked very much, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But this is his job. This is what he does. Jesus comes up one day, and more than likely, my guess is Jesus has seen Levi in that role. He knows Levi Levi's been there. He probably knows Jesus. He knows his story. He's probably seen him in action. But Jesus stops by and kind of does his Jesus Jedi mind trick type stuff, like, Levi, follow me. And What does he do? He drops everything, and he goes and he follows Jesus. But what happens when he follows Jesus? Let's look at the next verse here, verse 29. It says, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. So Levi drops everything and he throws a party. It's a retirement party. He's going to have fun. Life is changing for him. He's ready to go. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Let's think about this party. We're in the D.C. area. Some of you may know IRS agents. You probably know accountants. There's probably a few in you in, of in, you in here. One of them is an elder of ours. Can you imagine what kind of party a bunch of accountants would have? They're probably going to talk about tax codes, Excel spreadsheets. I can't imagine it's going to be a thump in place, right? He throws a party. They have a good time, whatever that party looks like for them. They're talking about tax codes. They're having fun with each other because Levi's finally said, I'm done with this life. It's time for me to move on. But who does he invite to this party? Other tax collectors. People that he knows, that he's connected with, he's close to. (laughs) Other people that the people there in Israel didn't care for a whole lot. And so this probably is kind of sort of this the strange party that's happening within Levi's Levi's home. But he does it; He throws a party. In the background, there's this shadowy group that is lurking, that always seems to be lurking when Jesus is around. Look at verse 30. It says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? and sinners. Pharisees could not stand the tax collectors. In fact, within the context of their faith, they were ritually unclean. And if you were a devout Jew, you did everything you could to stay away from the tax collectors. There wasn't a whole lot of interaction there. But it wasn't only the religious people who couldn't stand the tax collectors. The Jewish people didn't like them either. A couple of reasons. One, they were working with and for the Roman government. They couldn't understand how these people who were Jewish could do that. Not only that, they knew they were being extorted. They knew that the money they were paying for these taxes was way more than they needed to be paying. And so the Jewish people themselves couldn't stand the tax collectors. But in in there, the Romans really didn't care much for the tax collectors either. Now, they really didn't care a whole lot, only that they couldn't believe tax collectors were charging so much for these trips and these products that were going back and forth because they're thinking to themselves, these are some of your own people that you're charging this to. Why would you do that? So you've got the Pharisees and religious people, you've got the Jews themselves, and then you've got the Romans. And all of these people are looking at the tax collectors and like, oh, you are the scum of the earth. The Pharisees see what's happening. They look at the disciples. They see Jesus in action. And they say, why? Why would you spend any amount of time with those people? Why would you spend any time with the tax collectors. And here's what Jesus says in verse 31. He says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, the sinners, to repentance. Jesus tells the, ph- the Pharisees, he says, This isn't about you guys. This is about a group of people who are far from God. This is why I'm doing this. It's the, the sick who need a doctor? Not the healthy. Think about this for a moment. What were the Pharisees doing? They were judging tax collectors. They knew them for their job. But did they know them as people? They judged them. Jesus didn't judge them for their job. Jesus saw them as human beings. Jesus saw their souls. Jesus saw them as children of God. Jesus looked at them very differently than the Pharisees did. And so when Jesus says, I'm here to help the sick, he says, I- I'm here to be a part of their lives because, man, they need to be connected to me. And yet the Pharisees would build up these spiritual fences around themselves because they didn't want anything to do with the tax collectors because they were judging them for who they were. Let's go back to your neighbors for a moment. What do you know about your neighbors? I asked this the very first week. What are the details you know about your neighbors? Do you know their names and then de- what details do you know about them? More than likely, what we know about our neighbors is connected to what we've seen. They never mow their yard, okay? They have a car out front that's on jacks, and it's been on jacks for about three years now. They never clean anything out in their backyard. Their kids are crazy. We hear them yelling at each other. Their parenting style is different. They're the people that get in their Mustang at 3.30 in the morning to go to work and rev it up so everybody knows that they're going to work at 3.30 in the morning. You know, this is is what we see or, or what we've experienced. Or it's what other people in the neighborhood have told us. Well, let me tell you about that family. Let me tell you some stories about them. And so what do we do? We begin to judge them too based on peripheral stuff just like the pharisees we have to come to a place where we look at our neighbors and say they're different they're weird they're strange they probably think the same thing about us but but they're humans they have souls and they're god's children just like we are scary part for us though is the relationship piece when you look at your neighbors and you think i'm not sure i want to really build a relationship with them but when jesus says love your neighbor as yourself and that means part of who we are for a follower of christ is building a relationship with them what does that look like well there's a couple of things we need to understand about relationships because you and i like to build fences and we like to build fences with our neighbors specifically and sometimes physical but i'm talking about spiritual fences here but we have to understand what those relationships are like the first thing is relationships are messy right? Think about some of the relationships we have, family relationships. Um, Everybody seems to have the crazy uncle in the family, okay? The awkward cousin, the uncouth brother-in-law, uh maybe if you're like a lot of people your mother-in-law's in town for the weekend they're hanging out with you and you're like i don't really don't care for my mother-in-law a whole lot but she's here so i'm gonna hang out with her i gonna be nice to her you know you have those mother-in-law father-in-law things that are happening the mom and dad things that are happening something happened 25 years ago at the beach and nobody's forgotten about it and you think about it, it's like seriously you broke that one thing and you, your family still hates each other because of that one thing that happened we don't let these things go you know our relationships when it comes to our family they're messy or how about marriage Marriage is the easiest thing in the world, right, all the married people in here? No, it's terrible. No, it's not terrible. It's great. It's wonderful. (laughs) Marriage is messy. It's messy. Let me talk to those of you that are uh, not married yet because you've watched a lot of movies and so you know exactly what marriage is like because you watch these movies and a little thing happens and at the end everybody loves each other. It's great. It's wonderful. Marriage is not like that, okay? When you go to bed at night, the person, you know, you watch a movie, and they go to bed at night, their hair is made up, it looks like they've got makeup on, everything looks perfect, they wake up in the morning, wow, their hair hasn't changed, they look perfect, everything looks wonderful, they're talking to each other, I mean, this is incredible. Nah, that's not the way it is. When you wake up in the morning and you're married, some things have changed. <laughs> their hair is all messy, right? Right? The hair's messy. Um, Sometimes they have eye boogers. (laughs) Some of you are are droolers, and so you wake up and you got like this drool that's kind of caked to your face. And let's just be honest for a moment. When everybody wakes up in the morning, you and your spouse, you have death breath, right? In the movies, they wake up and they're like, oh, the smoochy smooch smooch. When you wake up with your spouse, you're like, hey, let's smoochy smoochie like, get away from me, go brush your teeth, go floss, go do Listerine, and then maybe we can share a kiss with each other, right? I mean, relationships are messy when it comes to marriage in in many different ways. Parenting's messy. You got a six-year-old kid, you're like, man, I wish I could send you to college tomorrow because I'm kind of done. Those parenting relationships are messy. Friendships are messy. One moment you're liking everything they put on Instagram. The next moment you're blocking them. One moment you're going on a two-week vacation with them. The next week you're saying, I don't want anything to do with you. They're messy. All relationships are messy. But here's the deal. Those kind of relationships, are some structure to it. You know these people. You know their expectations, their characteristics, their personalities. You know how they're going to react. You know what buttons to push and which ones not to push, even though sometimes we push them. But you know these people, there's structure there. Our neighbors, what do we know about them? Not a whole lot. What we do know about them is they're different. Different cultures, different financial background, different ways of parenting, different marriage, different religiously. We look at them from a distance and we judge them because there's not a structure to that relationship that's there or that should be there. All these other relationships in our life, they're structured. Now this one's not. They're so different than we are. They're messy. What does Jesus say? Pharisees say, hey, why do you want to mess with the messy people? Jesus jumps in and says, why not? It's the messy who need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. It's our neighbors who need us to build and to tear, well, really to tear down those fences that we build up, to begin to open up the dialogue and the connections with them, but for many of us, we act like the Pharisees and we continue to build fences. And we do that because relationships are scary. Relationships are scary. There's this fear that we have there, the fear of the unknown, of those people who are our neighbors. I mean, why do good fences make good neighbors? They protect us, don't they? They they keep us safe. If I build this fence up, then you can't come into my life and I can't get into yours. If I build this fence up, I will never have to bear my soul to you, and you're never going to have to bear your soul to me. If I build this fence up, I don't need to hear your story. You're not ever going to hear my story. So we build these fences up. By the way, we don't want to build fences in other places. Somebody needs help in another country, let's go help them. Let's go serve them. Let's do everything we can. And yet, one of the greatest mission fields we have is right where we live. But we build fences because we believe that good fences make good neighbors. The fear, I think, the Pharisees had with the tax collectors is they didn't know them. Again, they judged them from what they saw. They didn't know them as people, and they built up those spiritual fences around them. And So we do the same thing. Those relationships, they're messy, and they're scary. But what does Jesus do? Jesus engages in the messiness. Jesus engages in the messiness. And in fact, if you look through Scripture, if you look through the stories of Jesus, who does he keep engaging himself with? It's the messy people. He has to deal with the Pharisees because they keep showing up and causing problems. But he has to engage with the messy people that come around him because he truly understands when it says love your neighbor as yourself, you love your neighbor as yourself. You live that out. You tear those fences down. And you engage in the messiness of other people's lives. Now that's hard to do. I understand that. It's easy to come to a place like this where there's some commonality that we have. It's easy to go be a part of a club or an activity where there's some commonality. It's hard when you really don't know the people who live right beside you. And yet if we're truly going to live out, love your neighbor as yourself, we've got to engage in the messiness of the places that we live. Jesus does that, but do you notice who else does this? Levi. He engages in the messiness. Who does he invite to his party? His buddies, his friends, the other tax collectors. I'm afraid for many of us, when we become a follower of Christ, here's what we say. That was my past life. You're from the past. I don't want to be around you anymore. I've got my little Christian friend clique I want to hang out with now. And for many people, when they become followers of Jesus, they build up these huge spiritual fences because you're afraid of what that mess may look like moving forward. Levi says... These are my buddies. I'm just going to hang out with them. And he invites them, and he engages in that messiness. My guess is at this dinner, at this party that a bunch of accountants are having, talking about Excel spreadsheets, um, that Levi begins to talk about what Jesus did in his life. He begins to tell them, this is who I was, this is what I was doing, and this is who I am Now. Oh, and by the way, here's Jesus. Let me introduce you to him myself. Levi wasn't afraid to engage in the messiness either, just like Jesus does. And, and I'm, I'm beginning to think that maybe Levi understood those words, love your neighbor as yourself, better than the religious leaders, people who should have known it, the people who should have been living it out. Levi's living that out right in front of him. Hey, relationships are messy and they're scary, but we have to learn to engage in that messiness i want to give you three next steps that you can take and then i've got a big challenge for us to help us begin to engage in that messiness the first thing i would say is again write down the names if you haven't done this yet write down the names of your neighbors more than likely you don't know them what are their names the second thing i would say is say hello to them write down their names find out their names say hello to them About a week and a half ago, I was uh, outside our house and um, our neighbor across the street was was outside, and I haven't talked to him. We've been there about nine, ten months now. I haven't had a chance to meet him. But I looked, and one of their minivans had all kinds of stuff on it from graduation, you know, congrats to the class of 2017, all these UVA stickers and everything. And he was outside near his car. I was like, hey, man, I said, congratulations. Looks like one of your daughters graduated. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And he, he began to talk a little bit about her, and, you know, she was going to the University of Virginia in the fall. And then he said his older daughter was already at the University of Virginia. And I'm thinking, Holy cow, dude, how much money are you spending to send your kids to school at the University of Virginia? I didn't really ask him that, but I really wanted to find out how much he was spending. Um, So we started talking about this a little bit. You know, oh, this is neat and cool and interesting. And so we talked for about five or six minutes, and, and I went inside. It was the first time I had interacted with him at all. How many times do we interact with our neighbors by just saying, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Maybe that's something we do do. Maybe you write down, you know their names, maybe you say hello, but, but then third, how many of us actually engage in the messiness? How many of us spend time beyond just a hello? Another uh, our, our neighbor across the street, he was military, and then he worked for the State Department for quite a few years, probably about, I don't know, about a month after we lived there, he came over to talk to me, and he was telling us our schedule. He was like, hey, you guys go do this, at this point in time you go there and you do this, I'm like, whoo. Dude, you're stalking us. I don't think this is cool. Great guy, we feel good. We can leave the house. We know he's watching it. Everything's gonna be fine, right? But, um, but you know, it's it's one of those things. It's just it's just checking in on your neighbors. You know, when your neighbor comes home and they're on crutches or they've got a big old cast on their leg, that something something not good happened. Do you go to their house and say, "Hey, you guys good? Can I help you out? You need a meal?" I think we also know when people die in families, we see that, we notice that, because let's be honest, we're watching our neighbors, we may not interact with them, but we watch them, and if you see that someone has probably died, what? just make a casserole and take it over and say, hey, I've got some food for you, if we can help in any way, let us know, we want to be here for you, we want to support you in any way we can. Maybe they're outside putting together a swing set, and you can tell they're having a hard time, hey, can I help you put that together, I don't know how to do any of this, but you can show me and I'll help you make this happen. Or you see them in the backyard, and they're digging this big old hole, and you don't know what they're digging a the hole for and who they're going to put in there, but you're just going to help them. Hey, can I help you dig this hole, and then I'll leave, and then you can do whatever you need to do with the hole there. But it's just small things like that that we don't even think about, but it's just those moments for us to engage in the messiness of their lives. But I've got one more challenge for you, and a bigger challenge that goes beyond just the small things. Share a meal. Share a meal. Have you thought about sharing a meal with your neighbors before? Maybe some of you do that. Maybe you're very connected, and this is what your neighborhood do- does. This is what the people right around you do. My guess is most of us don't. We don't show- share a meal with our neighbors. In 1956, President Eisenhower and Congress passed the Interstate Highway Act which was the beginning of the superhighway system that we have now, so that we could be connected city A to city B, and we didn't have to drive down all these two-lane roads. We could have this huge highway to travel on. The birth of the superhighways also meant the birth of fast food restaurants. Now everything's perfect, right? You can travel fast, and you can stop and eat quickly, and you can get to your destination faster than you ever could before. But here's what happened. The birth of the superhighways led to the birth of fast food restaurants, which led to the death of shared meals. Now, anywhere we travel, there's a fast food restaurant. We can stop anywhere and eat. And not just eat, we can eat quickly. We're so calend- our calendars are so full and we're so scheduled that... We don't have time to stop and eat and have a conversation. And so we just run from place to place. We stop at a fast food restaurant. We get our food and we go to our next appointment, our next meeting, our next activity. And this is the way we live our lives now. We're always on the go. And we've forgotten what it means to stop, and to eat, and to share a meal. In the ritual of dinner, Margaret Visser writes these words. The average length of an American dinner with or without TV is 30 minutes, which Sounds probably even long today, which suggests that not a great deal of discussion is taking place. You add in fast food restaurants, man, there's a, there's, even in our families, there's not a whole lot of discussion and conversation that's happening. Never mind the neighbors who live right beside us. There's a Latin word, convivium, and that Latin word means feast. And in that feast, here's what you would do in a convivium. You would come to this table, and you'd put all your food. It's almost like a potluck of yesteryear. You'd you put all your food in the middle of the table, and people would come, and they would sit around the table, and they would grab the food, and they would eat. And the food was the prize, the reward, were the conversations that took place, the discussions, the interactions with these people that are there eating with you. We have forgotten how to stop and rest and relax and talk one-on-one or with a group of people. Over a meal. And yet it could be the most powerful thing that happens in your neighborhood. It could be the most powerful thing that happens in your life. Do we take the time to share a meal with those around us? How do you do that? Simple. Take a piece of paper. Take a pen. You write down, here's a date. Here's our time frame. And this is what we're going to eat. We're going to be at our house. Here's the address. You know, it's right across the hallway from you or right around the corner there, whatever it may be. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a cookout. We're going to make steaks. We're going to make hamburgers. It's going to be organic veggie burger night, if that's what you're into, whatever it may be. It's going to be Italian night. It's going to be pizza night, whatever it may be. Just write it down and say, hey, we want to invite you. You go to the doors right around you, your neighbors. You stop by. You knock. You say, hey, we want to invite you to this. You're going to be surprised how many people are going to show up you know why? They're not doing it anywhere else. They're not building relationships in many other places. And if they are, they're very peripheral. Why not spend the time getting to know the people who live right beside you? I know they're weird. I know they're strange. Okay? But to them, you are too. It's okay. We live in a land of strangers. Let's change that to building these relationships with people who are our neighbors. Here's what I want you to do with that, with this challenge. If you're up for that challenge, if you're like, hey, we're going to do that, I want you to email me, chad at thejourneynova.org, and let me know. Maybe you're saying, hey, can you give me some ideas here? Or, you know, we may need a little help. I'll help you do that. I'll help you put that together, whatever that may look like for you. But I want to know that you're doing this. I want to pray for you in your community, in your neighborhood, and doing this and making this happen. And here's why. It's interesting that Matthew writes these words from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. A black hole is a collapsed star. And uh, as it begins to do this incredible gravitational pull, it creates this event horizon, which means any light that enters never comes out. In fact, anything that's pulled into this black hole never escapes. Think about your home for a moment. Is it a black hole? Is it sucking you in every single day? You come home from work. You come home from school. You come home from your activities. And you think, oh, I'd really like to. No, I'm just going to go inside my house. You know, my neighbor's outside. I should go talk. No, I'm just going to go hang out in my home. I'm afraid for many of us, our, our homes are black holes. And they're just sucking us in. If you're a follower of Christ, Jesus said, no, you're not a black hole. You're the light of the world. And if you and I can understand that the place that we live is a place that God has put us in this time, in this period, And we should be a light right where we live. For followers of Christ, we do a great job being a light in different places. But I think the best place that we can be a light is right in our own neighborhood. You're called to be light, not darkness. We're called to be light. So what would it look like for you and I to be light where we live? Again, you don't know the impact that you may have on someone's life, but just taking the time to try and share a meal with them. And I can promise you when you do that, their lives are not only going to be changed, but yours and mine will be too. I invite you to be a light in this world. And doing that means that we love our neighbors as ourselves. I hope you'll take that challenge. I hope you'll jump in. I hope you'll be that light and that you and I can begin to live that out. Can you imagine what would happen if in each one of our neighborhoods we did that? Can you imagine the impact we would have in this community? And at a place like this, in this world, we can do it. We just take the time to love our neighbors as ourselves. Every week here at The Journey, we come together and we take this bread and we take this juice as a church community. And it's a reminder, I think, to you and I that, that God saw the messiness of all humanity. And what did God do? He sent Jesus to this earth to be a light for all of us. And if Jesus was sent to this earth to do that for us, then what does that look like for you and I to be the light right where we live?